Well, welcome back to Sheep Stuff You Should Know with uh, Ryan Mahoney coming to you here from the Amy Livestock headquarters in Rio Vista, California. And Dan Macon coming from my wife's vet office here in Auburn, California. Nice and hot here in Auburn again. How's things down there? Good. A little breezy. The winds picked up and the, it was supposed to get to 105, but the breeze picked up better than the weather forecasters knew. And so we haven't gotten over 100. So it, it's been nice down here. It's nice. Nice break. We we moved sheep real early this morning and um, it was good to be doing it early because it was already warm here in the foothills. So what stage are your lambs in right now? Are you Have you weaned yet or are you getting close to weaning? Yeah, we weaned uh, two weeks ago. Um, we shipped some lambs. Um, you know, our market is more on the kind of the ethnic side of things. So we shipped some lambs to Superior and picked out replacements and picked out a handful that we're going to finish ourselves. And so, yeah, we're kind of in full summer mode now. It's good. Jill, are you happy with the lamb crop, the weaning percentages, everything all good or what? <clears throat> Very happy with weaning percentage. I'm a little disappointed in our weights this year and I, I need to, sit down and kind of think about why that is. We're a little, little lighter than last year, but every year is a little different too. You have more rain than normal up there in the spring? You know, we had late rain. Yeah. Which could have been it. We had early maturing feed and then late rain. So I think that that probably is a big part of it. Yeah, that light, that late rain and you get, you get, uh, what was it, you get, you get poor feed quality. You get more of it, but you get poor, the, the nutrition isn't as strong. Yep. Those dry years can produce some of the biggest lambs. Well, and I think, I think part of what happened for us is that it was such an unusual year that a lot of our feed matured early. And so the nutritional quality dropped in May where we'd still be pretty strong on some of our rangeland feed. Yeah. So every year's different. Oh, absolutely. What about uh, you cold right now too? You cold when you wean? Yeah, so we picked out, um, we, we kind of call twice a year. We, we picked out the spring calls and we'll get them shipped here in about a week. And then we'll go through them again before we start flushing and, and turn the bucks in in the fall and just check mouths and check bags and that sort of thing. So Good deal. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so it kind of settled in now, not, you know, now we're in irrigation and fence building mode for the rest of the summer, kind of. <laughs> How are things there? What's going on there? Oh, good. Um, you know, we're in summer mode. We got the irrigated pastures cranking and moving, and um, we have all of our all of our lambs are all weaned, all our cattle are weaned and sold, and uh, got a motorcycle brigade running by us right now. But <laughs> uh, yeah, we're just moving along. Everything's good. Um, I just. I just got back from Oregon. I did, we did a, uh, me and I took my son with me and we did a little sheep tour road trip up there to go see some guys that we buy lambs from and then um, go look at some ewes that, that uh, we're looking at maybe buying and see some range and visit some friends and, and just kind of do a little sheep, sheep road trip adventure. Yeah, and that, that kind of brings me to my first question for you today. That's a great segue. Um, we asked your, your granddad this last week, but where's, where's the best sheep country you've visited in your travels in the Western U.S.? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, cause all, every area is a little different and is kind of special for its own, own 
own uh, uh, reasons. I, I, I'm partial to the Montezuma Hills because that's where I'm from, and and um, it's just got a great year-round climate. Um, the negatives here are kind of probably foot rot or real fine wool type sheep um, can struggle with the on the wet years, but for the most of the time, it's really really good sheep country. It's it's um, it, it's just it makes good good lambs and the ewes hold together well and and they commingle with the cattle well and I, I really like the hills here but when you go around the country there there's I don't know there's a lot of there's something to be said about those big mountain ranges in the summertime when the, they get those spring rains and summer rains and the, the you get the feed and those big bands of sheep that are really just in that high desert natural environment to them that that you can just see them shining and and doing real well yeah and that's that's pretty special um all none of the ranges are different that idaho country that my grandpa spoke of is is yeah. pretty special there's such a drastic change in in elevations and, and but really good range is made by good water good clean fresh water yeah. and so the, those better ranges tend to have better waters i mean you can get into some little pockets in nevada that just have some phenomenal water and you think you go through nevada and you don't think of water very often but <laughs> when you can get a range with some good water those lambs will just explode and and do real well um eastern oregon is where we were at and um you know once again it's just it's real special especially when you get up north you know they're yeah. they're just yeah it's really hard to pick on one you know, pick yeah one. so and yeah. it depends on the time of year too because I love the summer ranges up in the mountains, but gosh, I sure as heck don't like the snowed in winters. Yeah. <laughs> so you got to have good winter range and yep. yeah, it's a, it's an art putting all that together. So. Yeah. Very definitely. Yeah. We're, uh, we're kind of headed that direction here at the end of the week to go look at that colleges with our daughter and, and uh, we'll actually get into Northern Idaho and Western Montana a little bit. But yeah. I always like seeing that country too. You one one area that I think is is a lot of times not not uh, or overlooked a little bit, but is really some phenomenal sheep country is that um, is the Willamette Valley, oh, Oregon, yeah. and then down to Roseburg, Oregon, and you get in those hills in Roseburg, and and of course you can't run the fine wools down there because of the moisture, but man the 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 uh, quality of the forage and the ability to raise, like they're some of the best Texels and Dorsets and crossbreds. They run a lot of crossbred ewes or Suffolk ewes down there and then cross them over with the Texel or a, and, and those lambs can just be gorgeous little, you know, fat little buggers coming off at 120 pounds. They don't always get a good, good, good shake because when you take them out of that environment and move them into a real dry climate, you can have some problems with pneumonia. So a lot of a lot of your traditional buyers don't like going in there and buying those lambs because of that risk. But man, you look at those lambs and their natural element and that's some of the prettiest stuff you ever see. You just beautiful sheep and beautiful lambs and just shining like a, I don't know, shining like heck. It's pretty cool. That's, that's really pretty country too. Really pretty country. Especially so where they can manage that forest and for and forage real well, where they can, yeah. They can, you know, they go through and they'll thin the trees down and they, you know, can fertilize some of those hills. And it's just, it's pretty amazing. It's a, it's a whole different production system, which yeah. to me is just fascinating about sheep. There's so much diversity in the ways that, that we can raise sheep all over the world. Yeah. But, 
So you've done some international travel too, right? Uh, yes, I have. I was able to go with um, the American Lamb Board, the Tri-Lamb yeah. uh, Tri Group, and uh, we were able to go on a tour to New Zealand and Australia and tour their production systems back there. Um, I was able to go through that, go to Lamex in Australia, which was just a, that was a, it was a very eye-opening experience. Um, what, what is Lamex? Lamex is a lamb exposition. It's held by Australia. Their, their sheep associations put it on. It's a every two-year deal. This year is canceled because of COVID, um, but it's usually every even-numbered year. Um, I went whenever, I guess it was like four years ago now for something like that. And then um, I was able to send Jeff Clark that worked for me. Mm -hmm. He was able to go two years ago. And then we had John Kidwell, the other guy that works for me, he's scheduled to go this year, but it got canceled. So he's going to go next time it comes around. But it's a, uh, it's basically, it's, it's, uh, you know, just like a lot of these trade organization events where it's a, it's an information sharing um, area. They have a lot of presenters on the different research that's being done over there. Mm -hmm. Um, there is a little bit of politics, but I'd say it's very kind of research centric. Yeah. Uh, you have a big trade show that everybody's showing off their um, newest and finest things. That's how I encountered Sapien Technologies was through Lamex, which oh, yeah. now we use right. to manage our data. Um, and then just, you know, to, to go to that and have such a concentration of sheep producers uh, from, you know, they are from Australia, but majority but there are some international presence there and you really learn a lot about what we in america are doing well and um how some of the things that we perceive are the negative things about our industry aren't necessarily negative and and so give me an example give me an example um i'd say like lamb weights is the a good example of that so one of the things they talked about there were um is in the international trade every kind of country or region they have their personality and as having their personality they have their uh, demand for meat so like uh, Canada likes shoulders and um, China likes uh, kind of bellies and kind of some of those the, those offcuts um, well America the United States of America we are the largest consumers of loins and racks so we eat oh. center meats well what is the American lamb known for giant loins yeah well, well that's developed because the market that we live in has demanded that so we've expanded the loins australia new zealand they're selling into more of a world market so they haven't focused on the loin they focused on all these other products as well and so that's one thing that i i, I kind of opened my eyes a bit because i've always you know you always hear about overweight lambs lambs are too big they're not finished right and all these things well our customer in the united states has demanded large loins for generations yeah and so of course we've developed that so rather than you know look at that as a negative I, I think it actually is a positive loins are positive in in this market now with COVID-19 and the lack of the restaurant trade and all those things loins aren't really selling really well so a lot of people that own packing houses or meat companies are probably you know pretty disappointed in their loins right now but traditionally the U.S. likes loins and that's one of the problems with the imports is when all these other markets are so good right um that they're able to sell their loins at a lower price point than we sell our loins for because we don't have as developed of a market um 
because so like legs legs are consumed in the uk they love leg. they eat a lot of leg there um like i said canada shoulders and so if you can sell your legs into uk and your shoulder into canada and your loins into the u.s and your other meats into china you're able to really get full value for that whole lamb whereas in the u.s because our numbers are so small it's hard to develop those export markets and so um we're not able to utilize that as well so we need to demand more for the products we can sell like the loins so that's one of the reasons why you have such a price spread and why imports get blamed for a lot of um uh, a lot of the negativity in the market they'll get the blame for it um it's not necessarily their fault um and i don't like blaming i don't ever like blaming people i always like yeah. trying to figure out the why and um, making changes to solve the why but well and it, and Part of that, part of making changes to solve the why is understanding how complex the whole system is, right? Yeah, yeah. Sometimes you got to travel to understand that. It's really easy to get in your own tunnel vision. Yeah, and you learn so much about your own ranch by seeing other people's. That's one thing I've always, my grandpa always taught me, and, and, you know, you learn every mile. So the more you can travel, the more you can go out and see, the more you learn. And you don't want to make a career out of just traveling because then you'll have no time at home, but you got (laughs) to... You got to find a balance and you got to be open and travel around. So, yeah, absolutely. So talking about travel, it it made me also think about transportation and um, that's another area where the scale that you operate at, the scale that I operate at are are very different, but it's a big part of of both of our businesses. And I was wondering if you could kind of walk through your process for, um, let's say you buy buy several loads of lambs, what's your process for getting them transported? And what are the things you have to think about to get trucks and receive those lambs and all of that? How does that work? Yeah. So there's a lot of logistics that go into buying lambs. Um, and it's the same for buying ewes and same for buying purebred uh, animals. And everyone kind of poses its own challenge. And um, so I have no problem buying 10 loads of lambs and arranging trucks and getting them home and figuring out where they're going. But if I buy, you know, four rams out of a ranch in Montana, I absolutely dread figuring <laughs> out those logistics. Whereas other guys, you know, that, that are tied into that, they know different gooseneck drivers and they know how to get a small bunch moved across the state. It's really easy for them. So yeah. it, it definitely depends on what you're doing. But um like we in the fall we'll go out to the mountain states and, and uh, we'll buy some lambs out of there and um there's a lot of factors that go into the trade itself and costs um number one is always going to be kind of your weighing condition and slash your your pay weight uh determining your pay weight there's a lot of ways to do that um what you want to be doing and the theory behind pay weights is you want to buy the meat, sellable meat. So if you take your animals and you fill them up on water and their bellies are full, you can sell an extra four or five pounds of meat or of lamb, but it's really all water. And by the time they transport from one location to another, that's all going to be peed out and you end up basically getting money for not for your product. And on the flip side of that, if you starve them out and they're empty completely, and by the time they get to the where they're going to go, there's a health concern and you, you, those lambs are hurt. And so you, you gotta have a fair weighing condition, which is accounting for that, just that natural belly shrink or the, 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 the basically the pee that gets peed out on the road. And you want to have some shrink, 
but you don't want to have excessive shrink. And you can have, um, I'll, I'll use a cattle example. So when we were hauling cattle from Dixon, California to Oklahoma to the feedlots, we would have anywhere from a 6% shrink in the body weight. So they would lose 6% of their body weight to 12%. Okay. And so you, that's a huge amount on a, say a thousand pound, for easy math, thousand pound animal, they'll lose 60 pounds or 120 pounds by the time they get to that feed lot. Amount of weight. And there's a lot of factors that go into it. And like, just to start, the, the first ones are how full are they and all that. So when you want a fair weighing condition, what you're trying to do is establish a fair weight. So that way the buyer is buying the appropriate amount of meat, but then also leaving enough in the stomach. So that way you're not starving out and there's no health issues. You want to take care of the animal because that's number one. And number two, you don't want to, but you don't want to be buying um, air or, or water or something that you can't sell. Yeah. Because that, that, that all plays into your bottom line. So the other factors that happen that, that affect the shrink are actually your, your drivers and the way you load the trucks. Okay. So one of the biggest differences in that shrink on those cattle were the trucks that we were using, the drivers and the dispatch that ran them. So we switched to this other company. We were dispatching through one company. We switched to the other company and we tightened up our six to 12% down to six to 8%. And it was 100% because the drivers that we switched to um, didn't break as hard, didn't take off as hard. They stopped at the appropriate times. They checked the animals. They, when they stopped for lunch or gas, they made sure the trailer was in the shade rather than in the sun. All those little things add up to a, a better driver. And then um, the way they paneled them, the way they spread them out, the way they calculated force space for animal, all those things go into that shrink. You pack your livestock in too hard, you run them hard, you stress them hard, they're gonna be in worse condition. Um, and the, the better, the smoother you transition that, the more comfortable the ride, the less shrink you're going to have on that. So it is really important to pay attention to who's hauling your livestock and yeah. how they handle them and how they work with them. Um, and then, so yeah, so then determining pay weight, you have a lot of different ways. Sometimes we'll, they'll do a overnight stand where you put the sheep in the night before you pen them up and you let them sit overnight. That shrinks them, that, you know, shrinks them out where they, pee out a good percentage or they get rid of a good percentage of that water weight yeah but then they still go on the truck where they have a decent amount in their belly and they don't shrink very much and so on that you would basically wait you you do the overnight stand you'd weigh them immediately and take no shrink percentage off of the pay weight okay the other way to do it is to take a percentage off so they bring the lambs in in the morning and they're full as ticks and you load them all you run them across the scale load them on the truck and you take say 4% off of the weight. So you take the total gross weight, you subtract 4% off to account for that shrink loss. And that is another way to create a fair weighing condition. That 4% is just a number. There's a lot of different numbers that are used. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then, you know, of course there is the way to do where they'll do a, a, you can do a no overnight stand, but then you load the trucks and then you drive the trucks for say 20 miles and then weigh the trucks on a scale that would be a no shrink situation because the the time that you started working it because remember stress gets that out so or working them gets that out so if you 
brought them in and you started working them and you sorted them and you ran them across the scale and loaded them on the truck. By the time they got to that scale, you know, 30 minutes to an hour later, they would have shrunk that two to 3% that yeah. you would have acquired by holding them overnight. And so that would be a no deduction off the pay weight because of the distance to the truck. And you can do any variation in between, but though determining the pay weight is pretty important when you're working your logistics. And then I uh, guess the back to the truck driver's yields, knowing who you're dispatching and dispatching through trusted people. Um, and that doesn't mean that every truck that I hire is the best and we've had issues yeah, and, um, but it's working through those people, building those relationships, understanding who they are and letting them understand what you want as an operator, as far as how you want your livestock handled. Does the, the pay weight determination method have any bearing on how you receive lambs when they're coming to you? So if they were held overnight, do you receive those lambs differently than lambs that were brought in and loaded and, and with the shrink calculated off of that weight? No. No, we, we, we handle them all the same in our, on our yard. Um, we, we receive them in, they settle down, we get them immediately on water and then we'll, um, get them on feed usually within 12 hours of receiving. So, um, we had one situation one time, and this is why it's really important as a producer when you're selling to be honest with what's going on. We had a, we, we didn't buy these. We were, we received them on a custom feed agreement. And the lambs were um, pulled off of feed and water because they thought they were going to ship on a Monday. And then they moved them, they loaded them on a truck on the Monday and moved them to another corral or location and they dropped them off and they sat them there for a Tuesday. And we didn't end up seeing those lambs till um, Wednesday, Wednesday or Thursday. It was, they were basically two to three days off of water. And so they were completely dehydrated. And, and this is an example of what not to do. This is, this, will, this is one of those things that I hope everybody recognizes that it's that, you know, we're not supporting this, but things happen in life and, and you have to learn from these mistakes yeah, to, right. to, to go forward. But anyway, so they were basically off of feeding water for three days. And when we received them, we received them like we normally do. We put them right on water. And of course, if you have something dehydrated, that's the first thing you would do is go put them on water. But well, we put them on water, then we brought them to the corrals and we started medicating them and after with, our, with the normal processing. And we let the first group out and all of a sudden those lambs, they just started shaking and hemorrhaging and died. Oh, wow. And what it was, was it was salt poisoning, which is basically they hit the water way too hard because they were so dehydrated that it hemorrhaged their brain where they, they, they had the blood shooting their head. And so we stopped everything and immediately released them all out to pasture. And then we, by doing that, because when you give them you, what you need to do in that situation, and if we would have known that they were off of water for so long, we would have done this. You need to, if you have a dehydrated animal, you need to release it onto green grass is the best thing because they will get the moisture from the grass for those first little bit of time, and then you can expose them to water. But if you expose them to straight water, that's what caused the problem. That'll rehydrate them more slowly. Yeah, exactly. And so then they, they, they won't shock their system, which is what yeah. happened. And that was one of the worst things I've ever seen in my life. And oh, yeah. um, 
I mean, of course, once that happened, we called the person that bought them. They called the producer and the producers, oh, yeah, oh, gosh, darn it. Yeah, we did keep them off. What? So we didn't even know. And the guy who bought them didn't even know until after we had the problem. And so that's why it's so important when you're selling lambs, you're honest with the situation. You don't, you know, you don't say I didn't give them no water, but you actually gave them 10,000 gallons. And you also don't not give them water and then tell them, oh yeah, we just kept them, you know, we, they had plenty of water for the last two days. You got to be honest. So that way on the receiving end, they're taken care of all the way through. Yep. Yeah. So it, it's hopefully wow. that's a learning thing and someone can learn from that. But. Oh yeah, absolutely. Wow. So just to, to put this next question in context a little bit, um, we walked, walked our ewes up the road, maybe half a mile today where we're summer grazing. And our summer, we've got a, a place that's maybe six miles from our irrigated pasture where we summer the dry ewes and, and then where we lamb out. And I've always kind of halfway toyed with the idea of, is, does it make more sense for us to walk those sheep that six miles maybe over the space of two days than to put them in the gooseneck and haul them? So how do you determine you know, you've got a lot more sheep, but how do you determine when you can walk sheep versus when you got to put them on a truck and, and move them from one place to another? Is there, what goes into that consideration for you? Yeah, I think the first thing I'd look, I look at is the um, ease of the path. So if we're in, if you can walk them and the roads are fenced real well and you can just walk them down the road with a spotter in the front and spotters in the back, um, then we, we always prefer to walk them if we can. Yeah. Um, and so that's the first one. But then if we're in, we're in the Dixon Ridge feeding alfalfa fields and there's a whole bunch of farm fields in between and it's a little muddy and people planted stuff and you're going to struggle to keep them all on the road and, and keep them from maybe trailing into a field or something a little bit, then we'll maybe consider trucking them. So really the ease of transport, um, sheep walk, Oh gosh, what's the miles per hour? Are they is it like one to two miles per hour? I think. Something yeah, like something that. like that. I think it's like one, one and a half. Anyway, so you figure out how long you are. You don't want to walk them for more than like four hours at a time. Yeah. I would say is pretty maxed. And yeah, and you don't that when you're walking them, you're walking them, but you're not pushing them. Right. So you don't want them run if they're running. Right. You actually put a person in front of the band to hold them to slow them down to make yep. them walk at a comfortable pace. Um, so it, it, you know, you're not, you're not running them. Cause if you run them, you can only go maybe 10 minutes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you got to find a home, but if you can walk them nice and gently and they can pick at some feet on the shoulders of the road and you just kind of go nice and gently, um, you can walk them, you know, four hours or so pretty easily. So it just, it really depends on that side of it. One of the things that I, I, um, learned when we were working with targeted grazing contractors in Lincoln you know, we're, we're pushing some of those dry use to really take the feed down. So we may stay eight hours longer than you would stay otherwise, just to, for the terms of the contract. And uh, you open that fence up when those sheep had been there, maybe a little longer than they would have been otherwise by their own choice. And they do move pretty quick for about the first five or 10 minutes. And it, it does take somebody out in front, kind of slowing them down. And, and then they line out and walk just fine. But yeah. That first 10 minutes can be a little chaotic sometimes. 
Yeah. And you always need to have a trailer or something with you. So that way, if a U gets tired, you can pick it up, put it in the trailer and carry yep. it the rest of the way. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So, and then of course there's the cost. You can cost money to, it costs money to hire trucks and that stuff, but it also costs money to have all those people on the road walking. And so, Oh yeah. Um, yeah. You got to look at, at both. What's it cost um, per loaded mile on a, on a truck typically? What do you expect to pay? Oh, on a truck, it's four and a quarter a mile. Okay. Yeah, four and a quarter to four seventy-five. It's kind of been floating in there for a few years. Okay. Okay. And is that that? I assume that varies with fuel costs and. Oh yeah, everything. Yeah. And volume. I mean, if you're in deadhead miles and all those things, so yeah, you know, our truck dispatch gets to drive ten minutes from their house to load our loads and then haul them somewhere. Whereas if you got to get a truck in, um, if they live in Dixon and you got to get a truck in Elko, Nevada and haul it to the Mojave Desert, and then he's got a deadhead, so he has to deadhead to, um, the fire truck, um, deadhead to uh, to uh, Elko and then dead, deadhead home, that's like eight, nine hundred extra miles that he has to recoup. Yeah, yeah, right, right. So returning to our own travels, um, this probably never happens to you, but sometimes I actually do some non-sheep related trips, um, but I always get busted by my wife because I always end up looking at sheep somewhere. Has that ever happened to you? Yeah, a little bit. We did try <laughs> to go vacation in New Zealand one time and, and I told her no sheep, so we stayed in Auckland and walked around downtown. But we did get a sneak out and go to one of my buddies' places and went to their ranch and was, so we did see a few sheep. But yeah, we try to try to make vacation vacations, but uh, I don't know, it always tends to involve sheep sometime. Last year we took a road road trip up to Oregon and we brought the whole family. It was after a swim meet. We loaded the van up with all our swim gear and all our camping gear and everything. And then we went to the swim meet, left the house like four in the morning, went to the swim meet, swam all morning. And then right after that, just drove right up I-5 to Oregon. (laughs) (laughs) My wife hated me for the first like 12, 13 hours of that trip. By the end, she loved it. So it worked out good, but we had to get her to that first hotel and pool before. That's right. That's right. (laughs) She was happy. That's right. One of our, one of our trips in this, or stops in this trip coming up we're we're going to go visit university of idaho um with emma our youngest daughter but uh i have a friend that's on the range science faculty up there and she found out we were coming and wants me to come out and see her research on virtual fences and we're going to some rangeland research project that she's doing with sheep and targeted grazing so it'll it'll be vacation because it won't be my projects but it'll be kind of fun to see some of that stuff too you need to go no i'm good i had the fire truck drove by and then my foreman called me for the hills and so i was a little nervous but it it sounded like it's all right so well one more quick question and then i'll let you go so if if you could go anywhere in the world to see sheep production someplace you haven't been yet where would it be? Oh gosh, sheep production just for sheep production. That that well, I, some place you want to see that might happen to have sheep. Yeah, because there's a couple of places I'd like to go that may have sheep, like Ireland or somewhere like that. But yeah, um, 
but I'd want to go there for other reasons too. But um, uh, the UK sheep production is pretty fascinating to me. I, the Irish and the the the, the British, because they have a lot of sheep over there, and it, it's um, kind of a similar situation where they're a highly affluent society, but still and pretty concentrated, small landmass, but still producing a lot of sheep. And so they yeah. it's kind of an interesting model to see. It would be fun to see. Um, I've been there, but never for sheep before. It was during my college days. Um, but then, I, you know, the, the opportunity to go to Peru would be pretty spectacular to see some yeah. of the sheep herders in the high mountains up there in Peru. I just love to get up there and, and, and see that. They have, they shear their sheep with the hand trimmer still. Oh, yeah. Areas, and they'll bring in like a hundred man shearing crew and I'll be trimming. I just, that's like a dream of mine to go see that. That would be yeah, really I would love fun. to see that. But, love to see that. Um, and then, of course, the Basque region in Spain would be spectacular as well. Um, and Spain and France. Um, I'd like to, I'd like to see that. I'd like to see, um, see some of the South African production yeah. systems too. I think that would be an interesting place to visit. Yeah. For lots the, of reasons. The Chinese and Mongolian sheep production would be pretty fascinating too, because China's the number one producer of sheep. They consume yeah. it all locally. But uh, that'd be that'd be an interesting interesting culture shock because it would be so different, you know. You know what's what's really fascinating though, I have a, a friend in uh, Calaveras County where I grew up who got to go to Mongolia, Mongolia, oh, maybe 20 years ago. And his family's always trailed cattle up into the high Sierra and, and he lived in a cow camp all summer as a kid and did, did a lot of that kind of what we think of as traditional Western U.S. ranching. And he said on his whole trip to China, the place he felt the most at home was staying with herders out in Mongolia and eating sheep, eating mutton around the campfire. So that felt like cow camp to him. Yeah. It's, I think there's a, there's a common thread in, in that kind of rangeland type livestock production that I really enjoy. Yeah. You know, that's, to me, that's one of the special things about the industry and it's the livestock industry in general, but you yeah. know, the sheep because of the herding uh, and, and they're, they're the cow, the cow, cow industry to a point too, but the, really the sheep industry, the way the, herding goes and just the what it is but the that seems to be transcendent yep among all cultures i if you if you herd sheep and understand sheep um there's a connection and an understanding between people almost anywhere in the world and i've always found that fascinating and and uh just yeah something really cool when you when i went to australia the first time that was one of the things that shocked that surprised me the most growing up as an, as American and I, and I traveled to different places before and, but how similar their issues were and how, yeah. I mean, it was the same attitudes and the same principles that drove my family are the same ones that are driving these Australian farmers and these New Zealand farmers. And, you know, it's just, it's a, it's a, when you, when you create, when you assist in the creation from the land, there's just something there that, that the rest of societies don't get experience. Martin Echemendi said something similar to me last year. He said, we all speak different languages, all of us sheep herders, but we all understand one another. Yeah, yeah that's true. That's very true. Yeah. 
So next week we have a, a guest host. Is that right? Yeah, we got a guest host coming on. It's uh, it's going to be Joe Fisher from Bruin Ranch. He's actually a cattle producer, but has some ties to the sheep. And and uh, really, what we're going to talk about is uh, raising kids in the sheep industry and raising you know raising family and and uh, the lifestyle of ranching. So it's, I'm right, looking forward wait. to it. It should be pretty fun. Well, I'll, I'll tune in from the road and, and uh, I'll see you back here in about two weeks. Huh? Perfect. Give us a five-star review on uh, Apple <laughs> Podcasts. Help us out a little bit. I will. I will. Absolutely. All right. Well, right on. Well, thanks again, Dan. Appreciate the time and the questions and uh, look forward to next time. I do too. As always, I learned a lot. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, Dan. Take care. Have a good week. You too.